Kanka, and I'm your host, James Roberts. Before we get started with this week's show, first off, let me take this opportunity to welcome back the regular listeners, and if this is your first time listening to the show, I hope you enjoy this episode and decide to subscribe to the show. And on today's show, I've got Joe Gibson. Joe is a clinical physiotherapist at uh, Liverpool Upper Limb Unit, and she is at Liverpool Hospital and has been a consultant in private practice. She has worked as a shoulder specialist since 1995 and lectures nationally and internationally about assessment and rehabilitation of the shoulder complex. Joe has also co-developed master modules with Liverpool University for the diagnosis and treatment of upper limb pathology and has co-authored national guidelines for the management of different shoulder pathologies. She has presented original research at many national and international conferences, published in peer-reviewed journals and written seven book chap- uh, several book chapters. In addition, she is an associate editor of the British Shoulder and Elbow Journal. So welcome on to the show, Joe. Hi, thanks very much for having me. So before we delve into today's topic, Joe, can you kind of divulge why you wanted to kind of go into that field specifically from the get-go? Um, well, the simple answer is I didn't. I hated treating shoulders. <laughs> I thought they were an awful joint and I couldn't understand why nobody got better. But I'm part of um, some advanced physio training, which um, kind of opened my And I guess the other, the other part of the story is when I was a little junior physio working in Nottingham, um, as a reward at the end of the rotation, we were allowed to follow the big head honcho on the ward round for the day. Um, and that was Angus Wallace, who is an extremely uh, famous shoulder surgeon. And I guess I'd just never met anybody that was so passionate about what they did. Um, and he was just an amazing guy and it really resonated with me. So then his colleague, Simon Frostick, came to work in Liverpool at a time when I was getting a bit cheesed off with the NHS and needed a challenge. Um, and I kind of introduced myself and did this course at the same time. And so everything kind of fell into place and I found myself being a shoulder specialist. But out of interest, wh- why do you think that shoulders don't heal? Is it because of the complexity of the actual joint itself? Um, well, I don't feel like that anymore. I feel like the shoulder is very simple now. <laughs> After treating it since, I mean, I specialised or started specialising in 1995. Um, and at that time, I believed it was very complicated because it was such a mobile joint and so dependent on the muscles um, and very susceptible to overload injury. But I think now I have a far better understanding and I think I made it far too complicated And I think there are very simple things that can make a big difference. But it took a long long time to get there. And in your personal opinion, do you see that, from this question, that able-bodied or disabled have more problems with that instability of the shoulder or does it not really matter? Oh, I think that's a great question. I think it depends on the disability. I I mean, I've certainly worked with Paralympians and stuff, and there's no doubt if they're, you know, self-propelling and wheelchairs and then also training on top of that, potentially they're very, very vulnerable to load. And it can be a real challenge because certainly when I look at some of my approaches to rehabilitation, 
Um, I rely a lot on the rest of the body to make life easier for the shoulder, but I can still do that. I just have to work closely with the athlete and listen to them as to how we almost increase their capacity of their shoulder by using anything else that we can. But yeah, I think I probably have to think harder to be fair. But then doesn't it go a bit a step further, Joe, in terms of obviously with it, uh, an athlete being in a wheelchair because they're so heavily dependent on, say, the the frontal lobe, be it the chest and the the anterior um, of the shoulder. Do you think that puts an added strain on on the shoulder because of that? Because they're not really getting a respite from just pushing around day to day. But then, obviously, like you said, they're training on top of that as well. Absolutely, and so I think that it, it's more of a challenge to find a balance and what you can do to kind of keep the, the, not the good, there's no such thing as good and bad muscles, but if you like to try and keep your cuff function as good as it can be, because I guess the the risk of that, for all the reasons that you've said, is that you are likely to be fatiguing your cuff regularly. And I think the evidence supports if you do that, that mismatch between those big muscles gets even bigger. And so, yes, absolutely, potentially more vulnerable. And, and obviously, there's a lot of evidence looking at the kind of prevalence of shoulder injuries in, in kind of wheelchair athletes. So I think it is a challenge, but I, I don't think it's an insurmountable one, which is obviously proven by the amazing things that people do. And in terms of like shoulder cuff injuries themselves, is it the athletes themselves that are a bit more knowledgeable than the general public? Or does that come down to a case by case basis? Yeah, I think it varies hugely and it's very dependent on um, coaches um, and S&C people that the individual athletes have worked with and also the physiotherapists that they've worked with during their career. And unfortunately, I, I guess for me, because there are some very good physios involved in a lot of um, wheelchair sport, but at other upper limb sports, I tend to get to see people when perhaps they've not responded to the usual things. So by that stage, it takes a little bit more unraveling, but the bottom line is often the cuff just exactly as you say, has just been overloaded and is fatigued and kind of needs teaching to do its job again. Um, and I think probably we're learning more that we can potentially use in prevention, but I, but I don't think that we've perhaps done it as well as we could just yet. But why do you think that is, that these kind of um, people are being pro- not proactive, re- um, reactive instead of proactive? Um, oh, that's a great question. I, I think that I think the reality is there's a lot of good stuff going on, but I think there's been a real bias on strength, which clearly is hugely important, and the kind of robustness of the local system. But I think exactly like you said, in terms of a, um, a disabled athlete, in terms of how much um, trunk stability or strength they've got, gives you you know that varies obviously hugely depending on 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 the nature of the disability and and I guess you you are more dependent on robustness of that system and getting the rest of your muscles working as hard as they can if you have less potential elsewhere however I still think that I, I guess my I guess my instinct is the emphasis has always been on strength and I think we are increasingly understanding that the fatigue and the other functions of the cuff in terms of stability are something that perhaps we need to factor into our 
maintenance programs a little bit better and perhaps that would then give more longevity in some of those sports and is that because obviously we've looked at it in the past looking to strengthen that the other muscle because it is in all essence like a protective of the shoulder um, itself and instead of that looking to like you said look at the fact obviously because it's a smaller muscle as it is it's going to fatigue a lot faster than say any of the other muscles around the shoulder um but is it obviously a kind of a kind of a different way a different approach of looking at how we look at utilizing the shoulder in say the strength actual components I I think that's a great question again. I think the reality is we understand a lot more about the rotator cuff now. And the problem is with a lot of the more generic exercises that are out there. So, for example, just doing external rotation as an exercise. The problem is, is that once you have a strategy where you tend to um, fix your shoulder, for want of a better word, with your lats and pecs, the reality is you could do an external rotation exercise without actually getting a lot of activation of your rotator cuff. So that we now know in somebody that's injured, you will get far better value by supporting the weight of the arm because that will then take away lats and deltoid and allow you to selectively strengthen the cuff. And so we probably have to take things back further than perhaps we have done historically and EMGs probably give us a better understanding of how to make those exercises more specific. I think the other thing is that we kind of have a better understanding of the cuff itself in that it's not just about strength. It's it's about kind of it's, it's fee-forward reflex in terms of getting it switched on. And that's something that's also definitely lost and becomes more delayed the longer that people have had pathology. So I think it's... I think in answer to your question, it's kind of understanding exercises that give you better value to both re-educate that feed-forward reflex, but also to isolate the cuff for specific strengthening to then allow it to cope with the demands being placed on it. But Joe, wouldn't that exercise for some people, and I've used myself as the example, I've always had problems with that exercise because of the actual not flexibility of the actual shoulder joint, but the, in all honesty, probably like an instability in the shoulder. So it's never been a great exercise for me. So a lot of my strength and conditioning coaches have kind of got me to do it, but the strength in the movement isn't there. So it's not a worthwhile exercise to strengthen the shoulder. So they've kind of thrown it out the window and got me to do something else. But isn't that probably... I could say you could probably say that's generalizing a little bit but <laughs> wouldn't that be in most cases uh be the norm for most people that would be the case it's the the the, the, the shoulder isn't stable enough to be able to do the exercise whereas a lot of people you'll see they'll do that exercise to strengthen the rotator cuff and the shoulder but they kind of chuck form out the window and probably put themselves at more risk of actually injuring the shoulder Absolutely. I'm absolutely. That's exactly what I'm saying. I think is that, you know, just doing that gross external rotation exercise is is I don't think particularly useful in a lot of people for exactly that reason is that you're actually reiterating exactly what I've said, that they just cheat with the other muscles. And so they don't actually get the effect on the 
posterior cuff that they're trying to affect. So what I'm saying to you is in exactly in your situation, if you support the weight of the arm and particularly if some has got a background of instability add some compression so you could have your arm say at 45 degrees on a gym ball or on a plinth or whatever with support giving the glenohumeral joint some feedback by giving some compression and then what I would expect is for that to improve your ability to get that muscle working because you've absolutely nailed it the reality is that muscle won't work unless you put it in a position where you really isolate it because but if you've had pain and particularly if you've had problems and you've got a background of instability you will just use other muscles in preference so no you've absolutely nailed it but if we go a step further than that joe a lot of times with that exercise you're going to get because you're struggling and if you do actually get that muscle to work at it well i wouldn't say even this full capacity you're going to get that likelihood of impingement as well in, sorry, James, in what respect? So if you, well, no, in terms of what you're saying, if you just do an external rotation exercise with your, you know, with your arm down by your side, yeah, with some form of resistance, you're absolutely right. It has very little use because if you have pain and you have instability, the reality is all you will do is probably use your lats and pecs, even though they're medial rotators, you will use those to stabilize your shoulder. So then you're kind of working against your own resistance and recreating the problem so absolutely you could end up causing you know shoulder pain as a result of that absolutely but in terms of like exercises people could do is is it the ones you talk you talk about is supporting the the actual not elbow is there any others that people could use that maybe they would class as like outside the box so, for, so a lot of what I do um, is will would be very influenced by how much else of the body an athlete could use, um, because there's increasing evidence. If you know, say, if we have lower quadrant and we can use the lower quadrant, we can make life easy for the shoulder. Similarly, if we use trunk rotation, um, again, that makes it more specific to the rotator cuff rather and, and reduces the risk of cheating with those other muscles. So, wherever I can. Um, I will add those two things in. So if I don't have the luxury of, you know, functioning legs, then if I have some active trunk rotation, I would be using that because, again, trunk rotation is very protective to the shoulder. Um, and there's some nice EMG work showing that if you did your external rotation, almost um, pushing something out of the way or with a weight, but really exaggerated that thoracic rotation components, then you would have the positive benefits without the risk of overloading the cuff. So it comes down to, in terms of, well, it brings up my next question there. Well, also with having well tightness in other parts of the body, is, they, is that going to have a significant load on the shoulder then? If, say, you had tight lats, like for example, with being that sport specific, you're overloading those components. Would that then have an impact on the shoulder itself? Yeah. So from my perspective, things are usually tight because other things aren't doing their job properly. Um, so my my back, if you like, my aim is to try and get the right muscles doing their job so that the muscles that are tight aren't having to overwork to compensate. Does that make sense? Yeah. Yeah, so that's very, you know, for me, 
you know athletes like stretching and it makes them feel good and there's no doubt it'll give them some sensory input but for me in terms of the long-term health of that shoulder I want to get the muscles that aren't doing their job well enough to do it better so that the other muscles don't have to cheat well I I was an athlete I disagree with that Joe I, I wasn't a big <laughs> I wasn't a big fan of stretching I think as I got older I, I probably I probably had a shift in the mentality because I couldn't tie strength and conditioning with with the sport itself and as I progress it's like well it's not a great way of thinking because they kind of go hand in hand and I think as you I think you get older and you get more knowledgeable it's like well they wouldn't give you exercises for the sake of it because it's 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 trying to get well those little percentages as best as you can so I think as I've got, and I've obviously gone into that field as well within the. Yeah, no, no. I, I think. Yeah, sorry. I mean, I wasn't dis. What I, what I was saying in terms of the shoulder and what you were talking about with lats and kind of pecs, particularly. My my experience of working with athletes is generally those muscles are stiff or tight or however you want to describe it because the cuff isn't doing its job properly. In terms of preventative stretching, or there's no doubt there's evidence in overhead athletes and stuff of adding things like the sleeper stretch or cross body stretch or whatever as part of a program because there's no doubt adaptive change over time. I guess what I was saying is that I, it's it's why you're stretching so if you're you know if you're stretching to address the demands of that sport that's one thing but stretching a muscle that is tight because something else isn't working I would always want to get the right things working before I did stretching otherwise that, I believe that will limit its value does that is that a better answer <laughs> yeah I think I, it, it answers that question <laughs> I think it's me being pragmatic and, and being contrary a little bit but in terms of looking at the two compact like doing stretching to relieve well tightness and relieving it because you believe it's going to aid you isn't it looking at doing probably like pnf stretching as opposed to what is conventional oh god i can't even think what the word would be but you know like conventional old-fashioned stretching you're holding them for like 30 seconds would that be a better way for people to do it i think i think there's probably more supportive evidence for dynamic stretching yes i mean i kind of like pnf anyway um because it kind of there's lots of principles it employs that i like it's just it you know it kind of works with so many different sensory inputs to the system that makes sense um, and yeah, certainly dynamic stretching for me would be preferable to any sustained end range because, you know, it would be different if an athlete had had, I don't know, had had surgery and had stiffness in their shoulder as a result of an operation. In that case, I have no issue with stretching because you, you're likely to have fibrosis within the capsule. But somebody who's just counteracting the impact of their sport, then I, I would agree. I would think more dynamic stretching probably has more of a role. And I, I saw this question you were asked on your Twitter uh, the other day uh, by uh, George Dennison, who's the physio at uh, Exeter Chiefs. He, he asked, uh, using auditory and visual cues to affect excitability of the motor cortex in, in subjects with shoulder pain, how can you actually use auditory and visual cues? I can obviously, I can picture obviously using visually, but how can you actually use it? auditory cues to actually help shoulder pain 
Okay, so this has come very much from some work in the lower quadrant. Um, a, a very lovely lady called Ebony Rio, who did her research um, in the patella tendon looking using a metronome. Mm -hmm. So they were looking at the effects of sustained isometrics um, and how it affected pain, but also looking at how it modulated co cortical activity um, and getting athletes working with the metronome, doing these sustained isometrics seemed to have a preferential effect on um, modulating their cortical response. So, but I think even if you just look at the um, principles of motor learning, giving people an external focus can be a very effective way of down-regulating their pain system, but also changing their movement strategy. So the metronome might work very well for one person, whereas other, I do this actually as a, a drill on my course to show people the different effects. Whereas for some people, it will just completely throw them because they won't be able to coordinate their timing with the metronome. So, But then you put a piece of music on that has positive association with them and immediately they start to move much better. So it's finding what makes it easy for the athlete or the individual to do their exercise um, and, if you like, makes them move more with less effort um and and that's really it it's finding a kind of auditory cue that works for them so a lot of that for me is when I first meet somebody is talking to them about the things they like to do because people are either visual learners or auditory learners and and the things they tell me will help me identify what's likely to give them the best value so it could just be doing their exercises in time to the metronome it could be doing it in time to a bit of punchy music or from a visual point of view I do a lot of work with patients with instability and again they're often quite nervous about moving so if you get them to work towards a target so like a colored target on the wall and you just shout the color um, and get them to work very reactively again you can often get them moving in a much more efficient way without their instability so it's just manipulating the sensory system um, in lots of different ways to both modulate the pain response but make it easier for them to move without pain so in, a, in one essence, it's a bit like, from a research perspective, a placebo effect. Uh, I'm not. No, I don't think it is placebo. I think it's it, I think if you look vision, uh, if you look at vision as an example, vision synapses directly into the sensory motor cortex. So actually, if you if you make something very visual and you make the person less cognitive about their shoulder, there is really good evidence in the motor learning literature that that will change activation of their cortex. So it just allows them to access a different movement strategy. But I think in terms of what you're saying about placebo, it's kind of changing people's movement experience just by using a different input. And, and I think that's what's fun, really, because that's as a therapist for me, that's what's fun is is finding what works for my patients. Well, I think the the old the old ones you've well I've experienced in the past would be you know the exercise of drawing your name on on the wall with a um, Swiss ball and things like that. So I think right. that, I think the, what you're talking about I think that probably takes it a step further than that. Yeah, I think I I think yeah I think they're slightly different things. So in terms of what giving you a cognitive task that's making you trace your name is a kind of different type of processing to me shouting out a color and you having to do it at speed so it just activates different pathways and they're just different ways of overriding somebody's protective strategy 
to try and access a more fluent way of moving. So, and and again, it, it differs wildly with different people, but the evidence is definitely there to support those, those that kind of external focus in motor learning. But a lot of times, Joe, with pain, it's and I think it brings up that other that pain, not pain on it, that that the muscle tightness somewhere else because it's obviously at times you've got muscles tightening to protect whatever the injury might be yeah but again i think that that comes back to almost your point before the, the reality is it's understanding why that person is compensating and it's is there a local issue it like have they got a reactive tendinopathy and that pain is making them compensate or have they got a lot of fear associated with that pain? And so that's almost a predictive processing issue. So because it hurt the last time, the body expects it to hurt. They have a negative association with pain. So again, that drives that protective strategy. So again, it's really important to kind of hear the story and understand what's driving it to know what the best approach is to change it. Because there could be a local reactive tendinopathy and that is going to hurt. So that requires a different strategy than somebody who just needs to be shown they can move differently um, and to get them out of those kind of um, protective habits. And if we come at it from a different perspective, obviously I'll, I'll generalise here a little bit. Athletes are a little bit uh, naive at times with coming to a pain threshold. Uh, <laughs> when it comes to the shoulder, and I think if I use myself as an example, uh, I well, I tore a little bit of my rotator cuff, or how long would this have been? About ten years ago now. But the sensation I had that day in training was like a burning sensation. But I thought nothing of it because I thought it was just uh, like muscle fatigue. And it wasn't until I stopped exercising and tried to get off off the floor. And obviously the sh- the arm was well, the arm was responsive, but the shoulder there was I was the message was being sent to the shoulder to kind of get off the floor but just nothing was happening do you do you think from that perspective that we are sometimes maybe naive and thinking well this pain is could be related to something else when in fact it could be something more serious which was the case with me Oh, James, that's a great question. Because again, if you, you know, the thing is, anybody who's loading their shoulder, if you look at all the um, evidence that's coming out about imaging in athletes at the moment, if you look at overhead athletes, even those who've not had pain, you'll find scan findings, including cuff tears, label tears in 96% of athletes. And, And the difficulty is working out about the history what was it that tipped it over the edge so in terms of decision making it's almost easier if somebody's had a fall or they were lifting a weight and the weight gave way because literally they got a tear that's kind of an easier scenario than somebody who's just really pushed it hard in training like yourself and then subsequently had weakness and and again in terms of the tear itself and working out you know we we still kind of really don't know we think we should always routinely operate on the acutely torn ones that can give you a clear history of injury but the reality is there's a lot of athletes out there with rotator cuff tears that function without ever having had any surgery so i think we've still got quite a lot of questions well, I think I would I would, I would be I would be one of those athletes because they were quite surprised in terms of how quickly. Well, I was quite surprised as well in terms of how the body actually repaired itself, and I think it was from day one until they did the second. Um, oh God, I can't think what uh, EC not ECG. Um, 
ultrasound, oh, ultrasound. Yeah. Uh, they were quite surprised and actually it well I wouldn't say it's back to full hundred percent, but obviously back to functioning properly and I think it was within a week. Yeah, well that's see that's awesome because then if if you looked at the evidence now, they would kind of suggest that that tear may be may have been there, and then you just kind of pushed it beyond what the muscles could cope with. But that you're, it just shows a tremendous capacity of that system to compensate despite what a scan says. So well done, you. Well, it was it was. I think I think as an athlete, it's quite frustrating because you're thinking, well, I'm, I've got to train, but it was trying to say, well, I've got to get it healed. So it was. Lots and lots of physio, quite a few painkillers, but it's well. We're thinking talking about ten years ago. I'm thinking my body isn't as uh, probably easy to repair itself as it once was. But I, it's it, it's quite surprising what the body can do when it wants to get round to doing something. Absolutely, but again, I would say is that you can you can scan people. I mean, if rugby players are obviously a fantastic example. If you if you scan a lot of front row props, you you will find cuff tears and and even um, label tears. You know that go right the way around the joint, and yet these guys are playing with relatively no pain. And so I think you're right. I think it's phenomenal what the what the body can do. And I, I think it also sometimes is difficult to work out when these scan findings are relevant and when they're not. But there's no doubt if we look at people who have a lot of findings on their scan um, and don't have pain, it definitely seems to relate to the ability of the other muscles to either compensate or do their job harder. But when it goes a step further than that, Joan, if we look at the athlete themselves, would you say it is a culture and kind of a mindset, whereas when we associate pain it's not always bad and obviously we are accustomed to having inflammation and whatnot, you know, like small knocks and, and, and kind of get on with it because that is kind of the culture we've been not brought up in but are around, whereas it's only a little bit. You're not injured so you you carry on because if I don't do it and somebody else does it, well, I don't know, be it somewhere in the UK or around the world... I'm not putting myself on the back foot. Yeah, I, I think it. I think it's a really good question. Again, I think for me, uh, I'm just trying to think how to answer that, James. That's like <laughs> just ask me the question again. Sorry. Do 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 you think it comes down to a culture and a mindset? Because we, I think athletes are very accustomed to. If it's nothing serious, they're just going to push through anyway. Because if if I if it comes down to it. If I don't do it when I've got like niggling pains and somebody else does, I'm going to be probably on the back foot to them. Absolutely. So I think it, you're, you're right. And it's almost back to that question is when's pain OK and when isn't it? And there's no doubt you can look at lots of different sports where, you know, swimming, cricket, things like that. And you look at the instance of shoulder pain. There are a lot of people managing to continue playing at top level who still have shoulder pain. But it's a question of should we accept that or should we is that just a consequence of loading your shoulder in that way? And isn't it amazing people? But I think what you said about mindset is just so key, because if you have really healthy pain beliefs and you're progressively loading, then you're going to expect discomfort because you're continually challenging that tissue. And that, you know, that is probably controllable. The difference is if you have negative beliefs about pain and you worry about it 
and then somebody tells you about something on a scan that may not actually be relevant to that problem and then you start to compensate so there, there is increasing evidence that one of the key things is your attitude towards that pain and your belief about that pain as to potentially how much of an issue it is so I think you're absolutely I think the, the culture of putting up with it is a positive thing in some ways but then it's almost back to your other question of how do you know when you've gone too far and that's difficult to answer well I think from I think that that culture at elite level sport it's it's a difficult one because as an athlete you're going to push it as far as you can but you don't want to get injured but from a, a program standpoint there's always the next person up so that they're well, they have your uh, kind of well-being at heart a little bit, but at the end of the day, it's a program, so they're going to bring somebody else through. If it's not you, it's somebody yes. else. Yeah, so you don't want to miss out on that opportunity. I absolutely get that. I think I think for me, I love um, Tim Gabbard's work about all the load management, you know, and just being sensible about how you progress your load and training harder and smarter, and I really like that concept that, there's no problem pushing on and increasing what you're doing as long as you do it sensibly and steadily and I think with the shoulder what's interesting you know if you look at some of the studies that have been done in baseball and stuff there's no doubt that if you monitor people's thoracic rotation you monitor their isometric strength various other measures actually you can assess whether the cuff is recovering between sessions so as long as you're doing some sort of monitoring to make sure you're not getting a deterioration in function despite your progression of exercises and you've got some kind of safety nets built in there then there is no doubt it's well demonstrated that people there is a high incidence of shoulder pain in a lot of sports and and people just get on with it but the one you brought up with swimming surprised me because you 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 think of swimming as being a non a non yeah a non weight bearing <laughs> exercise. Yeah, but it's very repetitive. If you think of the thousands of strokes they do as part of their training, that's what's and there is definitely evidence that supports it's a lot to do with the training load. So it's simply one of repetition. So would you agree that uh, with any sport, it's coming back to training load, no matter what it is, then. Absolutely. And is it, well, there's no, well, there's no, at, at that level, there's no way around it because you've got to kind of do it and it's kind of, it's my, it's my way or the highway. But for, for somebody, say, lower down the, the, the pecking, not pecking on, but the, the, the echelons of sport, what could they kind of do? Like, would it be come down to changing the, the training load or changing the actual volume of the training to actually, kind of not compensate but kind of deviate from probably having those problems no I think I think then you know having heard um I mean I'm sure Tim can do a far better job than I can talking about the kind of load management stuff but for me the commonest thing I see in if you like the more amateur athletes and stuff is that they'll increase their training load or their SNC or something too quickly and what I really like about his work is if you kind of look at what you did um, in the last four weeks which is your chronic workload and then compare it to this week your acute workload you don't want to be going over a certain percentage because your risk then of tendinopathy type things or injury is high and so I think it's really just having the advice that you can keep progressing 
And what you don't want to do is your event to be far more than you've trained at. So you almost need to be doing more. And so I think his message, the training harder and smarter, is it, it sim- applies to that amateur group just as much. But you've got to progress there carefully. You've got to keep progressing, but you've got to do it in a systematic way rather than suddenly increasing what you're doing. And with a shoulder, that's definitely true, because I think if you over fatigue the cuff and then you straight into doing something again, that's when things start to get um, vulnerable. But would that come back to the, the essence of, um, oh, that kind of how modern society thinks they're result driven and they kind of forget the, about the process? Well, and I, you know, and I think it's almost back to what you said about culture before. You'll know yourself from your sporting experience that there are always things that are in and trendy and depending on who's won a gold medal, suddenly everybody wants to follow their training regime and stuff. And the reality is that physiologically athletes are different and, you know, there is no one size fits all. So from my perspective, it's it's understanding the physiology of that athlete and their response and and that's the challenge because uh, there's never going to be one magic there'll be a lot of people that can cope with one particular program but just because somebody can't doesn't mean they're weaker they just have a different demand or a different phenotype and and I think that's that's for me you know I can usually you know after an olympics you can definitely you can definitely see what the trends are because i'll get a you know a series of athletes with injuries because they've tried to follow the regime of whoever won the medal but haven't built up to it you know and and so it is it's just considering the whole picture but the what but from that perspective joe doesn't that come down to coaching it's shouldn't the the onus come on the the coach the the athlete's going to do what they're told to, to a certain extent absolutely absolutely and I'm not a coach and I'm, I'm not you know I'm not here to criticize anybody at all but I have to say that you know when I see athletes from many sports that there is a consistent theme that either the athletes had time off and then gone back to training and just done too much too soon or they've had lots of competitions in a very short space of time and again you know they, they they've gone then back into their training drill too soon and and, you know, it's easy for me to say from the outside because I'm seeing somebody when other things haven't got better. And I, and I think it's getting better, I think, you know, with sports science and, you know, some of the fabulous work out there. I do think it's getting better. But, you know, if the bottom line is if you do loads more than you did a couple of weeks before, you're going to run into trouble if you keep doing it. And, and yeah, I get – but, I, you know, again, I'd like to think, you know, certainly in elite sport, coaches are very well aware of this. And there's a lot of coaches at lower levels clearly doing a great job but those are the problems that I see. But in terms of, and I, I, I did kind of throw the coaches under the bus. I think I think that's maybe how I used to think as as an athlete. I think I've now I've kind of gone on the other end of the table and become the coach as well. I think I probably flipped that on that the, the the athlete probably needs to take more onus on themselves for for like prehab. Um, and looking after themselves and doing what used to be their one percent, I would say it should be. Uh, you shouldn't even think twice about it. It needs to be done because you want to be at, in your optimum um, capacity within your sport. So if it means coming to coming to training, I don't know, fifteen to thirty minutes earlier to do all that to prepare the shoulders and and whatever, not let the, the actual joints themselves to prepare for what the the 
hardships of the train is going to be, you need to do that and you need to take that onus on yourself. Absolutely. And, but again, I think it depends on the level of sport. And I have to say, you know, if I ever have an athlete that's injured, I always communicate with the coaches because they're the expert, you know, they're the expert about that sport and what they're trying to achieve. But then what I try and do is just share my perspective and what I think will increase the robustness of the athlete with regard to their shoulder. But I think in terms of what you're saying about the athlete taking responsibility, you know, if we just look at tens and health, it's all those wider issues like sleep and diet and all the other wrap rounds that, you know, probably are of equal importance as everything you're talking about. And so, again, it comes down to education. Well, you could say the modern athlete has got no excuse now because it's that's, that's <laughs> things like that is readily available. Absolutely. It's, it's, well, I was fortunate to go to uni as well. So I've got the sports science background, so I, I, I can call upon lecture lectures as I needed be and 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 I think when I was at my height in, in in elite sport I was at university so it was very much well utilizing my sport in my degree and using what I learned on my degree into into sport so it it it, it worked very nicely for me and I think it's as I've probably now retired it's I can look back and say well and I probably implement things and say to people or well, you should you should look to do this or 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 try this and and very much the ones the athletes say well I can't learn anything from this sport it's like well you're a little bit naive you can always pinch <laughs> something from uh anything be it I don't know how they implement certain aspects of maybe their 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 prehab and things like that and you can always learn something from somebody else Absolutely. Yeah, I, I completely agree. And I, I, and that's why it's a team thing, isn't it? You know, with the coach and the athlete and, and, and all their support systems. And, and I think there's some amazing information out there, but you've kind of, it's taking responsibility for that, isn't it? Mm-hmm. I think I, I, I'm very lucky in that I kind of, I step in and I'm asked to solve a problem. And then I get to work with all the great people around an athlete to kind of look at how we address that but also how to keep their shoulder essentially symptom free in the future and and you know it's it's fascinating but I've I've always found anybody that I've worked with has always been very open and have kind of taken on the concepts and then actually use those with other athletes as they've gone forward well you've got to be receptive to to be uh, to like other ideas because if something's not worked in the past you've got to be fairly open to try something that maybe you might have thought that is slightly outside the box yeah totally so joe for my last question i'd like to ask you before we wrap up the episode if you had to summarize uh what we've talked about tonight into one sentence for people to take away what would that be (laughs) don't do External rotation exercises with your arm in neutral if somebody's had shoulder pain for any length of time because you won't get the results that you want. There's a better way. I think that's a great that great answer there, Joe. So once <laughs> again, thanks for coming on the Mindset Game podcast. You're so welcome. Thanks so much for asking me. And I'm, I'm sorry that it took two tenths to get here. Well, that's technology for you. <laughs> thanks a million, James. Thanks again. And before I forget, I would really appreciate it if you would be so kind as to leave a short review 
as it helps to get the podcast more notoriety and it will be more visible in future to others and thus helping more people, which my guests and I are all about. Once again, thanks for listening and I'll catch you next time for another episode of the Mindset Game Podcast. Oh, my God.